gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? Dear listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Um, I am, if I sound a little different today, it's because I'm talking to you from uh, uh, moist, very moist Houston, um, Houston, New Orleans, and most of the state of Florida are, all, are the only three places that consistently beat Washington D.C. for uncomfortable moistness. And this is why I could never live here. But the people are very nice and the food is outstanding. And we're doing a dispatch event tonight. But by the time you hear this, it'll been last night. So, or even further in the past. Um, that's how time works. I'm very excited about today's uh, guest. I've been saying for a while on this podcast and off, we need to get him back. And, and when we were casting about for guests, I figured, oh, school's out. He can probably do it. And uh, I was right. Uh, Jonathan Adler, he's a professor. Uh, actually, you know what? You tell it because you told me to say you told me what to say, and I just it, it went in one ear and out the other. So, what are you? Well, it's good to be here. It's a mouthful. Uh, I am the Johann Verhey Memorial Professor of Law and Director of the Coleman P. Burke Center for Environmental Law at Case Western Reserve University. Okay, and so for listeners who are new here around here or may not know, I, I, I often say this when I'm talking to like Continenti or something. There are a handful of people, and I say this only with love who are, um, who hold more receipts than I do about various issues of sort of intellectual history on the right. And, uh, John is one of them. <laughs> and, um, uh, and he's often the guy I go to for, um, questions about things I can't remember anymore about those, ki those kinds of issues, but we're not going to start there. We're going to start since he is, you're a lawyer person with your fancy belt and all that kind of stuff. Uh, we'll start with something, um, sort of, law-ish. Um, we are talking Tuesday morning. Uh, per, former President Trump is being uh, arrested and arraigned today. Um, maybe he's not being arraigned. Whatever. Law words. Uh, what, uh, what do you make of the whole thing? Where do you come down on the whole thing? Oh, well, it's a mess. Um, uh, I come down on, I guess, in a similar place uh, that uh, your colleague David French does in that um, you know, it's a political matter in terms of where our country is, um, uh, prosecuting Trump federally for document-related stuff is politically a nightmare. Um, uh, legally, um, based on what we know, um, it's a very strong case. Uh, it is distinguishable from all of the other cases uh, that we are aware of, of folks doing things they shouldn't do with classified documents. And uh, it meets the standard Comey uh, gave us when explaining why they weren't going to pursue Hillary. Um, like a lot of folks, I wasn't, I wasn't a fan of the Comey standard. Uh, I think uh, Hillary got a pass. Um, but even under that kind of new special treatment for powerful political figure standard, I think that the allegations clearly meet that. And um, if you don't pursue this or you don't prosecute this, then you're saying you're never going to prosecute uh, politically important people for mishandling uh, classified documents, obstructing justice and the like. So I, I think, you know, the case is strong. I think the federal government has to pursue it. Um, but as kind of someone that watches politics, gosh, I wish we weren't here. Um, 
you know, um, I wish he'd been willing to turn over those boxes. Um, I wish he hadn't told his lawyers to lie. I wish he hadn't lied to his lawyers uh, and so on. So I, I wrote my LA Times column sort of about this in that um, I kind of feel like historians are going to look back and forget the Clinton presidency. Just Hillary Clinton has, in a weird way, not through design necessarily, not through intent necessarily, done more damage to American political, the American social political fabric than almost any figure, certainly in the 21st century, right? And it's, first of all, she shouldn't have run. She shouldn't have run saying it's her turn, right? She shouldn't have run for the same reason Jeb probably shouldn't have run at a populist moment or, you know, going in the tail end of a uh, financial crisis. You should not go to political dynasties, right? And then you add in the fact that her handling of the email stuff was such a populist pinata for all the right reasons, you know, like that it's the, the institutionalists running the institutions for their own benefit, thinking that the rules don't apply to them and then getting special treatment or, or being perceived to get special treatment. Right. And so fast forward to today, you have an enormous number of people who are literally arguing. I mean, you don't even have to like, you know, put on your interpretive hat very, very long to get there saying, because Hillary, there's a double standard because the rules didn't apply to Hillary. We should have no standards. We should have no rules at all. And you've gotten now large numbers of conservatives essentially arguing um, that the system itself is corrupt, that the rule of law is a meaningless concept. Um, And while they're arguing against becoming a banana republic, their arguments against becoming a banana republic are banana republic arguments, right? Because if you're saying Trump's so popular, you can't prosecute him. That's a banana republic argument right there. And and she ended up owning the cons. Uh, yeah, no, it, 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 I think that I think there's there's a lot to that. Um, you know, she represented a lot that is wrong with um, political elites and the way they act as if they're um, the, the rules don't apply to them. And um, when someone comes along that engages in what I think is even more egregious behavior. Um, and I probably say that in part because I'm a lawyer and I'm particularly concerned about you know, the obstruction of justice parts and the lying to your lawyers part and so on. Um, it does make it hard to make the case because, you know, the average person isn't in the weeds. The average person's not reading the indictment. The average person's not, um, you know, focusing on the difference between her willful decision to set up the server in the first place and whatever her motivations were as distinct from Trump telling his lackey to move boxes around so when his lawyers looked, they wouldn't find the right documents and the, you know, I mean, uh, and all that stuff. Or, um, and so that's, you know, it, it puts us in a bad place. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and maybe it is all Hillary's fault. Uh, I mean, I'm happy to blame her, but I still don't like that we're here. I don't like that we have a former president that acted this way. I don't like that we have a former president that kind of backed the Justice Department into a place where you can't not prosecute. I mean, there are tapes. I mean, as, as my, my colleague Sarah Isger likes to say, there are tapes of him literally saying, here, I'm criming. This is me criming. Listen to me crime. You know, I mean, it's like, it's a slam dunk kind of thing. But um, just to be clear, I am not 
blaming Hillary for Trump's actions. I am oh, sure. blaming right. the psychosis that conservative. I'm blaming her for being the excuse for conservatives to throw away everything that they allegedly believe in in defense of Trump. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I mean, people that um, are are defending Trump out of tribal loyalty or whatever else um, uh, have agency. Um, uh, their actions can be critiqued uh, and they uh, are responsible for their actions and choices. But we can still, right, as, as observers of the, of, of, of observers of, of political developments, recognize that there is causality, right? To describe um, how prior factors helped produce the current situation is not to deny the age. I mean, this is a, this is a bugaboo of mine all the time, right? Like, you know, we have these political conversations where you acknowledge that action A prompts reaction B. That can be descriptively true, and yet reaction B is still wrong. And we, politically, we don't, we don't like to hold those two ideas in our head at the same time because to acknowledge causality, we think, is to somehow, you know, blame A for B. And, you know, they're separate. Yeah, I, I, I think it's in part because we follow politics like a form of entertainment. And you don't want to say, oh, look, the villains, they had a reason for what they did, right? And so, like, just take something that, you know, you know more about than I do. is like uh, Harry Reid getting rid of the filibuster for nominations for, you know, for lower federal judgeships. Mitch McConnell literally said, if you do this, <laughs> you know, you're going to, we're going to, it's going to be a tit for tat thing. And then when... When McConnell does it as the tat for the tit, you know, everyone's like, how dare he do this? And he was like, he literally said, if you do this. And, um, oh, we all, we all said, it. I mean, I, blo I blogged that very day. I had a, one of my better blog posts of all time was, um, you know, Reed goes nuclear, expect fallout. Right. Um, <laughs> good, and, yeah. and, and it, it, and it was worse, right? Because there was no, there was no plausible argument for why the rule maneuver for one did not apply to the other, other than, you know, just the assertion, oh, we're, we're carving out um, one part of the executive, the appointments portion of the executive calendar from this reinterpretation of the rules. But yeah, no, exactly. Um, I mean, there are a lot, in judicial nominations, there are actually lots of examples of republic, I don't, I don't think that's actually one of the better ones, where Republicans responded you know, uh, by, by escalating, right? I think of it as the two kids in the back of the car, you know, one nudges the other one. Eventually the nudge becomes a shove, the shove becomes a slap. At some point as the parent, you have to intervene. And at a certain point, you're not interested in who started it. You're concerned about the fact that, you know, if your brother slaps you and you respond by punching your brother, at some point, someone's getting really hurt and the cycle has to stop. Um, and, um, there are lots of examples of that, right? Where we can say as a descriptive matter, norm breaking uh, encourages retaliation. Um, the retaliation is also is often disproportionate or excessive. Um, that's true, and th this is kind of like that in the sense that Hillary gets off, or at least escapes even serious investigation of 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 conduct conduct that is at least somewhat related now by the other side is 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 viewed as well why shouldn't that be treated the same way and to explain why applying the same standard to it would result in prosecution gets you into weeds that most people don't have time for right most most right you're you're 
your average citizen doesn't want to be in those weeds. Doesn't you know, they, have, they have their life to live. All right, so just you're a Federalist Society guy, right? You're a Federalist Society guy. Right? Yep. Yeah. The, yes, I am. On the libertarian wing of the Federalist Society. I, I'm, um, a, I'm a card-carrying member. I even have a little card, I, I, so I can say I'm a card-carrying member. How's the, how, so how is the conservative legal movement doing, in your opinion? Um, it feels like this common good constitutionalism thing is um, starting to sputter and shimmy to a halt. But that may just because I'm not paying much attention to it anymore. I remember I gave a talk to the Harvard Federal Society by, via Zoom during COVID. And I talked to some of those guys and, you know, some were saying about 30% of the membership were, you know, very much on the sort of uh, common good constitutionalism side. Um, and about 30% were on my side and the rest were undecided. Um, you just don't see much about it that seems to be catching fire anymore. But like, what do you think about all of it? I mean, there's there's a couple of things, right? One is, you know, the conservative legal movement has always been a you know bridged, um, like the conservative movement generally bridged a lot of groups that have different sets of priorities, right? Um, you know, the more libertarian folks, the more traditionally conservative, or socially conservative, religious folks, and so on. And there was, you know, I think fairly broad agreement through most of the movement. For example, that Roe was a was a bad decision and was hard to justify and was a corrupting force within within the constitutional firmament. Um, and um, so Dobbs, you know, overturning Rogue in some respects freed up a lot of groups to now focus on what their next, the next biggest target is. And there's a lot less consensus about that, right? There was, there was even for, for even for folks for whom Roe wasn't the worst thing, there was fairly broad agreement that it was, you know, as written, as conceived, was a really hard decision to justify under any plausible justification um, that relates to, you know, conservative legal principles. And there's a lot less consensus on a lot of other things. So, you know, there is a lot, you know, certainly a lot of disagreement about, um, you know, how active the court should be, um, how aggressively it should police certain sorts of boundaries, um, whether it's uh, separation of powers, whether it's federalism and so on. Um, in terms of common good constitutionalism itself, you know, I do think, you know, the Bostock decision and Gorsuch's opinion in that gave it a lot of fuel. Um, I think Dobbs, uh, uh, took a lot of fuel away, right? Um, because um, the court applying fairly traditional approaches to constitutional interpretation, the sorts of things that you know you've heard about in, in, in at Federalist Society meetings and talks and read op eds about and whatever else for decades, easily led to to that result. Um, uh, but you know there there are going to be other things that that raise these flashpoints, whether it's um, the, the legal dispute about Mifepristone, um, whether it's about um, uh, questions about federalism as relates to family matters, as it relates to transgender issues, as it relates to um, uh, uh, other questions that, that tend to divide um, traditional conservatives or social conservatives from libertarians. You know, it, it, it could well arise. I just don't think it'll have the same resonance as it did when, you know, abortion was front and center. Politically, right? Just, just to illustrate the question, 
politically, one of the things Dobbs seems to have done is illuminate the people who were sort of like, I think we've actually talked about this before. You know, Irving Kristol used to say there are two kinds of conservatives. There's anti-left and there's anti-state, right? And it's not like all anti-state people were libertarians and all anti-left were conservatives. It's that it's just an orientation about things. But like you could, and, and for most of the time, most conservative, most fusionists, right, were a little of both. And so you could take from column A about anti-state stuff when you were criticizing public schools and you can take from column B from anti-left when criticizing public schools. And it's only at the testing points where, you know, it's like, are you um, okay with charter schools or, or school choice if it's run by left-wingers that you start to see the distinctions between the two groups, right? That kind of thing. Similarly, I think we saw that with Dobbs that the comfortable sort of Janice-faced approach to abortion, which was that you could pretend to be a pro-lifer by being anti-Roe, and you could pretend to be a constitutional uh, originalist by being pro-life. Um, that went away, and a lot of politicians had no muscle memory of being able to figure out how to um, navigate, how to actually defend a pro-life position, um, which made, and anyway, so my, my question is, is like, in the Federalist Society, how much of it do you think is that sort of distinction between people who are conservative ends results versus conservative means people, which I think is sort of the maybe the right way to think about it? Yeah, well, well I mean, it's, it's I think one way it's I mean, I think among the the core, you know, the folks that are really diehard Fed stock, it is the ideas more than the the ends. Although, you know, I think most folks believe that the right approach to the law will more often than not, at least, produce um, uh, decent results. Um, I think part of it, though, is is you know, I mean, it's like when you were saying anti-state versus anti-left. You know, why did people dislike Roe? Right? Some people disliked Roe because it allowed abortion. Some people disliked Roe because it federalized an issue that really should be based handled at the state level. Some people didn't like it because it uh, made up. Um, uh, a constitutional basis for a decision. Um, some people didn't like it because it was contrary to the original public meaning of the Constitution. Some people didn't like it because it was the judiciary making this choice as opposed to legislatures. And, you know, now how different folks think feel about something like abortion can play differently in all those in all those groups, right? So were you an anti the courts doing this or were you an anti this being handled at the federal level? Well, that affects your view of, say, federal le legislation about abortion. Was it, Were you a court person versus a legislature person? Well, that may affect, you know, how you feel about um, uh, states doing it, um, uh, regulating it. Um, you know, there are folks, there are, you know, prominent in the federal society who claim that on, you know, their, their policy preferences, they're pro-choice. They just thought the Supreme Court had nothing to do with it, federal courts had nothing to do with it, and maybe courts generally have nothing to do with it. And so those those fissures are definitely there, um, and they're, we're going to see them in a, on a lot of questions. Um, I mean, uh, when there was a conservative administration uh, and the FDA um, 
revisits um, the approval of Mifepristone as it might, um, or the Justice Department um, decides to enforce the Comstock Act, you will see those divisions, right? Um, because um, if your primary motivation is anti-abortion, well, then enforcing the Comstock Act, which for those who are, are unaware, um, is a federal law that's over 100 years old, that's still on the books, that says it's illegal to uh, send abortifacients through the mail. Um, obviously has not been enforced in decades. Um, that has to be also just a minor part of, I mean, not a minor part, but it's one part of the Comstock Act, right? Because it was originally... Yeah, the Comstock Act was about, it was about prohibiting sending anything kind of indecent or morally injurious in the mails. Right. Lurid. That's why we call prudes Comstocks, right? It's, that's the, the whole... Right, right, yeah. right. And there's a list of things, but it, 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 it lists, um, uh, uh, medications and, and things used for performing an abortion specifically. Um, uh, and it's never been repealed. It's never been modified. Um, uh, and, uh, a conservative administration could decide to enforce that. Um, and, um, you know, that will reveal some cleavages that weren't there, just like at the state level. You know, I'm in Ohio. Um, it was easy for everybody in the Republican Party to say, oh, I'm pro-life um, and I, um, you know, I support this legislation when Roe was still on the books and nothing the Ohio legislature passed could be enforced. That's changed now, right? And um, uh, now... There are people that say, well, yeah, I'm against it, but after, you know, X weeks or Y weeks. Um, and um, as you mentioned, you know, the muscle memory of talk, being able to talk about how to engage in line drawing is totally gone because for 50 years, it was, it was a purely, you know, it was, it was, um, it was, it was purely a dramatic exercise, right? It was, it was posturing, it was signaling, there was very little that a, politician at the state level could do that operationalized the uh, uh, an anti-abortion position. And so it was, you know, you, you signaled to your camp, you didn't actually have to take responsibility for, you know, a, a, a law that imposed a particular limitation. Right. It's sort of like defending um, Taiwan when China had no ability to take Taiwan was a really easy position to take. <laughs> and now all of a sudden it's like, mm, yes. awkward. Right. Um, right. Right, it's like Ohio. Ohio, we have a six-week ban right now. Um, I, you know, my impression is that um, we're probably not a six-week state. We're probably a ten to twelve-week state. If you were going to kind of go by the median voter, is my guess. Um, uh, and um, you know, there's a lot of fights here about whether we're going to have a ballot in initiative like they did, I guess, in Michigan um, uh, that would. Uh, put abortion rights into the state constitution, uh, and there's a lot of fighting over that. Um, and you know, you know, on a lot of other issues where there's a push for a constitutional amendment by ballot initiative, um, the legislature has responded to that by figuring out, okay, what 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 position will take the steam out of the ballot initiative, but still keep most of what we want. Um, uh, that's how medical marijuana became legal in Ohio. Um, uh, and, you know, so, but the memory of how to do that in a, in a space like abortion is completely gone. And so we, Ohio will probably, or there's a possibility Ohio could suddenly flip from a state where 
that's very restrictive on abortion to one that's very permissive because there's no muscle memory about how to um, negotiate a, a uh, you know, how, how to, you know, there's, there's no memory that politics is the art of the possible, right? And that you want to think about what is the most you can get in moving in the direction of your of your preferred endpoint that's politically sustainable and stable. Well, also, I mean, and this also, this gets to your you know your offense thing earlier about how following the law and the constitution the right way leads to better policies. The adverse is true: is like not following the constitution can lead to all sorts of messes. And the argument about Roe for you know a lot of people on the right was. In, but also Ruth Bader Ginsburg, right, is short-circuiting a democratic process where solutions were bubbling up in a process of discovery from below instead it was imposed from above. And now 50 years later, and I, I say this purely descriptively, you know, I have lots of very close friends who are passionately pro-life, part of the pro-life movement, I, and, and, you know, I have my own views about all of that. But you've had, in that in those 50 years, where some people were getting losing all muscle memory about how to talk about compromise, there were other people who were hardening their positions to pro-life absolutism. Again, not it's a, it's a descriptive term, not a pejorative term, but a sort of if if you for fifty years, I mean, the pro-life movement was created because of Roe, essentially, and in that time, there's been a lot of work, education, indoctrination, religious intensification of the issue. So that an important part of the conservative or the Republican coalition can't, as a matter of principle, compromise on these things, at least intellectually, right? It's sort of like, yeah, we can do baby steps going in the right direction, you know, like the Ramesh Panuru approach, which is you take your wins where you can and move in a pro-life direction. That does not come naturally to a lot of people who are have been literally raised over the last 50 years in the slaughter of the innocence rhetoric. And um, that makes political compromise all more difficult. And it also makes it more difficult because people, there are people on the left who've been raised in the sort of the handmaid's tale kind of version of all of this. And those are not good building blocks for let's hammer something out at 10 weeks. Right. It's, I mean, it's a crucible of a lot of, of the political dysfunction we see more broadly, right? Which is, you know, we live in a, in a, diverse, heterogeneous republic where lots of people with lots of different views coexist. Um, this is a feature, not a bug. It's been part of the American experiment from the beginning. Um, you know, we forget that, like, different groups of Christians in the uh, late 18th and early 19th century weren't, like, merely disagreeing about, like, you know, what Sunday service was like. <laughs> they were disagreeing about pretty fundamental things about the nature of the universe, about uh, what is moral, about how one shows one adherence to uh, and belief in God and so on. Um, today, our religious disputes are political, um, uh, but we forget that in the political sphere is about how we negotiate those differences and each seek to, uh, you know, move the, the law closest to um, what we believe is the ideal state, but the nature of living in um, a civil society that has folks of diverse views is that the only way you get all that you want is by convincing people um, and converting them to, to, to your point of view. And in the interim, you take your victories where you can get them. Um, you know, it's like the, the old NR thing about, you know, supporting the most conservative electable 
person, right? It's like, you know, you, you want as much as you can given the political environment while you work to change that political environment. And as a country, we're very bad about that generally, right? Um, the the Freedom Caucus and the Progressive Caucus approach every piece of legislation as we get everything we want or there will be no legislation, which you don't do when you are as far away from the median voter as can be, right? That's just not the way, that's not, math doesn't work that way, right? Um, you can't get to a majority that way. Um, and on an issue like abortion, you know, we're, we're, we're suddenly thrust into it because we haven't even talked about it in those terms for 50 years, uh, even though, you know, many other countries that uh, ended up with um, rules about abortion that are far more stringent than, than, than the Roe Casey regime was, reached that through the political process. For most of my professional career, I have urinated from a great height on people saying, look to Europe, look to other countries. Uh, for insight about how to do things here. And I find myself doing that a lot lately about things like abortion or things about transgender stuff. I mean, simply because in America, the argument goes immediately to you're a bigot, you're a hateful bigot if you disagree with the transgender agenda as defined by, I don't know, the, the people who think Dylan Mulvaney is awesome or whatever, whoever these people are. And... You're like, well, you know, you know, Sweden and France and Germany, you know, they have gone a different way on this gender affirming care stuff. Are they all bigots? Right. I mean, like, like these are the people you told us we need their healthcare system. You know, maybe you should have a little more epistemic humility about these issues and we can talk about it more. Um, and it's sort of the same, same thing with abortion, both pro-life and pro-choice. It's like, you know, figuring out where taking taking stock of where people you think are not crazy societies that are not dysfunctional have come down on things i think is a useful tactic and not necessarily a point of guidance right i mean that uh, but it's 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 better than ignorance about those things sure especially and and it's and it's interesting on in, in on those issues because we usually think of our politics as being more influenced by religiosity than most of western europe um and so you know if they're reaching these positions on these fraught um questions that 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 tend to be very divisive here uh, without you know a a significant religious right for example um that should say something about about what the evidence is about what kind of rational secular folks should consider to be possible or conceivable um and let's face it you know on a lot of those sorts of issues it wouldn't we would not be surprised if the united states were to the right of europe on a lot of these sorts of questions um uh, what's what's interesting is that when it's not and uh, we act as if there's no no possible debate you can have um, on these questions. But, you know, it's it's but I agree with you in general. We should be very careful about pointing to Europe as uh, an example of how to do things, um, although it is worth noting. Um, there is a there. You know, we are not there. You know, uh, Scotland um, uh, is also, uh, I guess, uh, indi- has indicted or is, is going to prosecute a former head of state. So, um, without threats of violence, yeah, without threats of violence, um, yeah. Um, and you know, Berlusconi was who just recently passed away this week. Uh, 
I think, you know, he was charged every day that ended in Y. Um, <laughs> but, um, um, all right, so just, I, I wanted to check this because this is one of the things that put it in my head to have you on here is like, uh, we both mentioned National Review in the last five minutes. Um, our friend, Matt Scully, I like Matt Scully a lot. I have some serious disagreements with him about various and sundry things. Uh, but um, NR ran a piece by him, which I thought was, I want to be delicate here, an unpersuasive piece extolling the, the, the grandeur and parapiscasty of uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., and um, this aroused your ire, aroused mine as well. But um, you've been writing about Robert F. Kennedy Jr. for a long time, often in the pages of NR. Um, uh, so I'll just ask in a very open-ended way. What are your views on Robert F. Kennedy Jr.? <laughs> so let me say a couple of things. First, um, Scully is a, is a beautiful writer. Uh, I, I wish I could... I could compose paragraphs the way he does. Um, I like reading him. Um, if uh, RFK Jr. were as he described him, um, if that were the full story, I might have been convinced. Um, but um, uh, it's not. Um, RF, uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Um, is, um, is, in my view, is a crank uh, and has been for a long time um, and has someone who is someone whose relationship with the truth has been strained for a very long time. Now, it turns out, um, as, as a result of COVID and the like, he made some of the right enemies and he criticized some policies that were worthy of criticizing. Um, but that does not change the fact that he's a crank, that... Um, exaggerates, um, uh, repeatedly says things that are not true, says things that are untrue when it is implausible that he does not know they are untrue. And this goes back decades, goes back to, um, you know, I, I, I wrote a ton about him, uh, uh, on an R, on an RO in the early years when he would write all kinds of ridiculous things about the Bush administration, um, uh, but it was also beginning back then that he became a real anti-vaxxer, right? Not someone that's skeptical of COVID vaccinations or boosters and so on, a real anti-vaxxer, like the sort of person that wants to claim that vaccines uh, cause autism, that you shouldn't vaccinate your kid for measles, um, uh, the sort of person that wants to deny some of the most important medical breakthroughs um, and public health advances of of the last, you know, hundred years. Um, he's an election denier, um, going back to, um, the 2004 election, um, you know, diebold changing votes. I mean, you know, take your goofiest story about like bamboo infused ballots in Arizona and RFK Jr. has endorsed something equally wacky about the, about how Bush stole the election from, um, John Kerry in 2004. Um, uh, he says all again, all sorts of things about environmental policy, uh, that are untrue. Um, and, um, you know, th that's been his record for, for the past 20 years. And, you know, just as some in the environmental community put up with him and embraced him in the aughts, um, because he was criticizing Republicans and they liked it, um, and tried to overlook his kookiness. Um, unfortunately, some people on the right or on the anti-left, 
um, are embracing him because he's been critical of Anthony Fauci and he's been critical of um, some of the excesses of the COVID policies that were adopted. Um, But that does not change the fact that he's a crank, um, that he... Uh, says many untrue things, and many untrue things that, if we were to take seri- take them seriously, would be incredibly injurious, um, and you know people would die, um, children would die. On the measles thing, I mean, he went. Was it Samoa? There was some place he went and met with them and told them and, and pushed the "don't do vaccinations" things, and hundreds of people died because of. It's all kinds of stuff. I mean, you know, there there was this guy, and you know, it was you know, I I did a post or two on the corner. Um, after after Matt Scully's piece, kind of just linking to stuff. Um, yeah. Because I, I mean, I, I searched like my name and RFK Jr. on the NRO website and like <laughs> dozens and dozens of posts come up. I mean, you know, there was this guy, I'm going to forget his name. Um, I think it was Wakefield who had um, published some studies that have since been retracted um, that were supposedly showed some evidence of there being a problem with vaccines and, you know, Kennedy endorsed those. He doubled down on them um, and has turned it into, you know, this is a conspiracy of the drug companies. Um, and it's 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 wacky stuff. And it's it's wrong. It's demonstrably wrong. Um, you know, this is not a you know, this is not a case of being critical of someone who asks questions. I'm in favor of asking questions. It's not um, uh, a question of, um, uh, you know, you can't criticize COVID. I mean, This is someone who has been fundamentally wrong about questions that relate to, you know, core questions that relate to public health, not stuff in the midst of a crisis, but stuff that we have decades and decades of research and evidence on and and on elections. Um, So the things, you know, (laughs) things we should care about. Yeah, there's also all sorts of foreign policy, national security stuff where, again, I mean, I strongly disagree with people who are rooting for Russia, <laughs> and I am strongly disagree with people who don't think we should help Ukraine. But there are plausible, defensible, I mean, rooting for Russia is kind of hard. But saying that maybe we shouldn't be as invested in Ukraine as we are, that that's a defensible position to argue about. He's, he basically is saying that Ukraine's the aggressor, that this whole thing is America's fault. Um, he also says that... Uh, Sirhan, Sirhan didn't kill his father. I mean, he's got a lot of, I mean, he's a full spectrum crank, right? It's just like not, oh, yeah. you know, pure yeah. environmental niche crankery or electoral crankery or vax crankery. It's, it's, he's, he's the Walmart of cranks, right? I mean, he, they got, he's got everything um, for people looking for crankery. Right. I mean, if, if RFK Jr. tells me it's raining, I'm going to go to the window and check. Okay. Now, sometimes it will actually be raining. But that doesn't mean he's he's credible or responsible on the range of things. I mean, I mean, Dennis Kucinich is his campaign manager, know, which is awesome. Um, I mean, you know, but um, um, and you know, and I get the and I get the Schadenfreude of you know, let's see what happens in you know as he runs around um, in the Democratic primaries, such as they are. Um, uh, I get that. But, you know, and I get the, you know, if you if you're someone that thinks Twitter shouldn't ever ban somebody um, and you don't like the fact that he was banned by Twitter, fine. Uh, You know, um, uh, you know, if you think that um, uh, we, you know, we should be more tolerant of of kooks in public discourse because of our free sprint principles. Fine. Um, That doesn't change the fact that um, he has been consistently wrong 
about things. And and he can be shown and to, I mean, there. Are, I found old posts of mine just documenting instances of where, like, I'd been on a radio program with him. I had pointed out something he said was wrong. And then like, you know, a week later he says, you know, I made this claim and no one has even challenged this claim. And I'm like, dude, I was on the radio with you just last week (laughs) and I challenged you on it and you didn't have a response. And you may think I'm wrong, but don't make up the story that no one's even questioned your facts. It's that level of just denial. I mean, it's positively Trumpy. I mean, there's, there's a lot of parallels in terms of just a willingness to say things that are flatly untrue and demonstrably untrue to the point at which it's hard to believe that it's there's anything remotely good faith about it um and you know um and and conservatives should not be fooled and again you you can if if he causes some democrats to feel uncomfortable and you like you know you you know it, it that helps you fill your mug of liberal tears for the day fine but recognize that's all that's good you know no i I think it's right that's the and also i mean like just i don't know whether it's five percent or fifty percent but there is a significant portion of his support which is simply based on name id of robert f kennedy jr right i mean there's just like this idea that that i mean there's always this tendency among fringe types populist types anti-establishment types that when one of their people gets a little traction, they think, oh, this is it. The floodgates are going to come crashing down. We are going to, you know, th- we're going to take over. You know, it's like the Tulsi Gabbard juggernaut <laughs> so far is has been contained, you know, and it's the same thing. And and it happens, you know, Ron Paul, I mean, you go down a list, there, uh, Marianne Williamson, there's, it, it's a weird thing where if you have, and, and I think the era of social media makes it much, much worse where, I mean, like, let's put it this way, like, uh, 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 Rusty Reno and Adrian Vermeule and that crowd, um, they have enough supporters that when they go give a talk in New York or in Boston or in Chicago or whatever, they fill a room. And then they're like, wow, we've got a movement. Look at all these young people. We've got, and it's no, it's like literally... you know, 40% of your entire movement in this city is in this room right now, but they extrapolate 10 X to everything. And I think there are a lot of people who love people like Marianne Williamson or Robert F. Kennedy Jr. They think, well, if I'm into it and my friends are into it, we must be representative of hordes. And reality is no, it's like, it's like, it's, it's very easy to trick our brains into thinking like 5,000 retweets is proof of 5 million people supporting you. No, it's actually just 5,000 retweets. Right. Um, right. I mean, it's like, you know, all, all the, you know, I mean, it, it's, we see this culturally all the time, but it's certainly true in politics, right? That we, social media and the internet allow us to find people that think like us, allow us to kind of self-segregate and sort ourselves into echo chambers. And we start to believe that echo chamber is representative. And so you can see that in, in simple things like TV shows, right? So like, you know, um, uh, there's this show Succession, which I've never seen. Um, but apparently the finale was a big deal. And like everybody in my Twitter feed is talking about it. And yet it like, you know, there's like half a dozen crime shows on the major networks that routine, you know, routine, reruns get more viewers um, than the succession finale. And no one on my feet talking about that because, you know, the, the groups of people that I interact with are the audience, the succession audience, not the, you know, 
CSI, whatever city they're in now, audience. Repeats of Big Bang Theory did better than Tucker Carlson's show, but no one's talking about right. that on Twitter. I agree. All right, so let's move on to some actual public policy wonkery and nerdery. Um, so one of your Ballywicks for the longest time, um, which is why you have that big fancy title, is that you are a, a free market, um, uh, classically liberal, uh, uh, oriented uh, defender of environmental um, reforms. And um, first of all, I just want to ask broadly, you know, you can take the same way you want, but like, what is the state of that effort? You know, we, people on the right have been talking for a very long time about how free markets can help the environment, that, that statism is a problem for the environment. Um, and second, I am increasingly coming to the position that for all the good and noble work that, people, that you and people like you do, uh, at the end of the day, the way liberalism or classical liberalism or the free market is going to solve a lot of these thorny environmental things is actually by creating a environment where technological breakthroughs solve problems and rather than in ways that the repeal of the slog of repealing regulation may not. So anyway, take that wherever you go. want to go. What is the state of play these days? Are you getting tra more traction or less traction? I mean, it's mixed. I mean, you know, I think, I think politically in Washington, D.C., you know, there's, there's kind of the superficial discussion where people want to say this is what they're for or against, um, but nothing much happens policy-wise, right? Our major federal environmental laws, um, the vast majority of them haven't been re reviewed or revised in decades. Um, uh, Congress is, is able to throw money at things, buying land, subsidizing electric cars, what have you, um, uh, but not very good at, at substantive reform. Um, on the ground, um, there, though, there are lots of examples of uh, things happening because people in communities and in in uh, localities care about the bottom line results. And, you know, so you see examples of, of progress. Um, so I think, you know, it kind of depends on what you're focused on. I mean, if I'm focused on, you know, is Washington, D.C. allowing um, property rights and markets and technology to solve environmental problems? No. Um, Washington, D.C. is having a really hard time with that. Um, although the permitting reform that's in um, uh, the the debt ceiling bill might help. Um, but there are plenty of examples that we can see out in the world that show the ability to solve problems um, and the importance of liberal institutions in solving environmental problems. Um, so one example um, that I think, you know, we don't talk about enough is um, dematerialization. Um, um, we use less stuff today than we did two years ago, five years ago, ten years ago. We we are we are dematerializing on a molecular level, like using less atoms of stuff. Even though there are more of us, even though we're wealthier, even though we are theoretically consuming more from the standpoint of GDP or whatever else, um, we're actually using less material. And that is that is the trend that we're seeing in Western developed countries. And um, the fact that we can have more in terms of things that, you know, we can have more in terms of things that improve our lives while using less physical material um, is a miraculous achievement. And it's an achievement driven by markets. Um, it's an achievement driven by the desire to uh, do more with less, um, the desire to turn a buck, uh, make a profit, um, to uh, uh, 
figure out how to do things more efficiently. So the example that I use that that um, people our age can appreciate is, you know, we're growing up, you wanted to talk to somebody, you were communicating through copper wire. And that's really resource intensive. It's really energy intensive to dig the copper out of the ground, to smelt it, to turn it into the cables, to dig up the ground. You know, And then we went through this period where that's replaced by fiber optics. And so copper is being replaced by silica, by sand. Um, and for reasons that I don't understand, you know, this little cable made out of sand, you know, that light goes through can send far more than the, the equivalent amount of copper. And it was cheaper and it was far less resource intensive. That's one of the reasons it was cheaper is because it used less resources. And now we're doing so much through wavelength, through bandwidth, through, you know, um, uh, wireless uh, technologies of various sorts, which, yes, require heavy metals from various places, but overall, the amount of material that's involved is a tiny fraction. The amount of mining that has to occur is a tiny fraction. The amount of, um, of, of heavy industrial activity that's required is a tiny fraction. And we're able to do so much more of it, right? We consume so much more communication using far less stuff. And that's a, a miraculous environmental achievement, one we want to export to the world um, and one we want to replicate, right? I mean, when we, it comes to an issue... Right, but aren't you making my, my point for me? And that I think, yeah, I think that technological... Like, if we get cold fusion, right, we can, get to, we can tear down all these stupid friggin' windmills. Um, we can get rid of all these ugly solar panels. Um, if we get... Uh, if we get... If we get fusion we can or if we get better rockets we can put solar panels in space i don't care how ugly space is um and you know they just had this caltech just had this test where they beamed down energy um to earth from a satellite you know yeah i I hope that works although i i played sim city enough um back in the day that that i worry about like right isn't like in sim city you could build those right you could build those and occasionally they would miss and they would you'd have to go right um uh no i so Yes, but we have to remember that technological advances do not occur in a vacuum. There's a reason why for the last however many decades, uh, so much of the technological innovation we're talking about has come from the United States and not from uh, the former Soviet Union. Um, uh, There's a reason why um, it happens in certain places and not others, and at certain times and not others. And that's because the institutional arrangement and arrangements and the institu- institutional environment in which would-be entrepreneurs and would-be innovators are operating affects the likelihood of them reaching these achievements, right? So dematerialization is happening most prominently, most fully uh, in the most capitalistic parts of the world. So, um, so... What we shouldn't do, uh, right, is say, well, technology, eventually someone will figure it out so we can just sit back and not worry about it. We do need to worry about, um, you know, if if, if an invent- something is invented, will we be allowed to use it? Will we be allowed to deploy it? Um, will it get approval? Will it need approval? Um, will someone be able to make money on it? Um, because all those sorts of things are going to affect the likelihood of the innovation happening and then the likelihood of it being deployed. And this is a, you know, I mean, one of the big fights we're having right now um, in in environmental policy is, you know, we have decades and decades of regulations that make it really hard to build things and really hard to get governmental permits. And they were designed to stop highways and pipelines and, you know, prevent people from 
building offshore oil platforms or to you know make sure all of that was done in as, an, as slowly uh, and in as an environmentally sensitive a way possible. Well, you apply that regulatory system to uh, wind farms or to something as basic as electricity transmission, um, and it kills it, right? I mean, it's permitting uh, um, transmission lines for electricity in seven years is fast today. Um, that's nuts. And so even for the technologies we have, we, we have created an institutional environment and a regulatory structure that is hostile to being able to deploy things that could produce environmental benefits now. And, um, uh, you know, that's why, you know, there's, this is, permitting reform keeps being an issue um, uh, in, in all sorts of political debates because there is a portion of, for lack of a better phrase, the environmental left that realizes that they can't have the thing, any of the things that they want if, they don't give up some of the regulatory tools or regulatory weapons that um, they 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 helped adopt and and have deployed uh, historically. Um, uh, but it's just an example of how it, the institutional environment matters. The the the, the law matters. I, I agree with you on all of that, and um, um, and I think you know. I mean, I I find it. And I can't believe this hasn't come up yet. You're a Philly guy, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I ninety five. <laughs> so this this chunk of I ninety five goes down, and I criti I made this point on Twitter, and people came at me like I was a total and complete moron. And I I, I just said, look, look, I I think it's kind of they had just announced it could take many months to fix this thing, right? Um, and I said it's amazing how the party of government, even when it knows everyone is watching can't get off the stick fast enough to solve a problem quickly. And people are like, what do you know about structural engineering? And how long do you think it should take? I don't know how long it should take. I know that we built the Pentagon in 16 months, right? You know, and I know that we built the big dig in 22 years. I know that, you know, like the, the Empire State Building went up in like 14 months or something like that. Um, uh, I know that in California, after the earthquake, they suspended all the regulations on stuff and gave out, they basically did oper Operation Warp Speed to get stuff rebuilt, and it worked really fast. And, like, my approach to this thing is just, like, do your job, right? I mean, like, this is, like, this is, like, hugely important. And, um, you know, whenever one of these things happens... And someone proposes maybe we should suspend Davis-Bacon Act, right, or or heaven forbid the Jones Act or whatever. The, the sort of the sclerotic calcified aspects of the sort of public sector union state say no, 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 no. This is precisely the time when we we can't have when everyone's watching. We can't reveal to people that in fact, <laughs> like these projects don't take as long as they actually do, um, and. Um, and I just think this is my ongoing gripe about so much of the sort of the democratic liberal welfare state people is they want to tell us the government can transform the country, that the government can do these great, big, audacious, amazing things. And yet they don't, the government can't do the things that all Americans want the government to do, right? The, the sort of simple balls and, you know, you know, base hitting 
you know, uh, you know, basics of, of government, good schools, fight crime, good roads, right? Those are the, basically that covers like 80% of the expectations of Americans for their government and the party of government would rather go swing for the fences for ambitious stuff rather than do the sort of the, the bread and butter stuff. Well, I mean, it's two things, right? One, I mean, so, right, the, the problem for rebuilding that is not going to be the, the structural engineering, and it probably won't be getting the material, although it's possible, right? There are still some, you know, supply chain issues here and there and and and, and the like. Um, the problem is going to be the permitting, the approval, the the governmental parts of it. The thing that's fun is interesting, though, is that is that you know you, if you can't do the simple stuff, repair a very narrow, small part of I ninety five um, in the location where it was, you know, to the standards that we allow our highways. You know, this is not you know building a highway you know, through a national park or through some area that's never been developed where we don't know what the effects might be. We haven't, and maybe, and there's an argument, maybe we should know, at least know, you know, how is this going to affect species? How is it going to affect drainage? Whatever, you know, there was a highway there. There will be a highway there again. It will have the same footprint. It should be able to be done relatively quickly um, if we're serious about doing stuff quickly. Um, but of course, when we talk about government doing the big things, you still have those problems. I mean, the, you gave the example of the big dig, the 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 um, the high speed rail or whatever in California, right? I mean, is another example of this. I mean, we you, to build big stuff, um, you're just magnifying the problem, right? If you can't build small things without all of this delay and this paperwork and this nonsense, you can't do the big things. Um, if you want to um, decarbonize. Uh, the American energy system, and you need to have a lot of power lines, and you need to have them in a lot of places, and you need to be able to get electricity where it needs to be, uh, and you can't do that right now. Um, you can't even do it in Texas very well right now. Um, you certainly can't do it and only have the less than 1% of, of the time outage that used to be the industry standard. Um, they're actually changing the industry standard because they're trying, you know... We can't meet it um, because we can't build stuff that we need to build, and um, there is this disconnect, right? That the you know we want government to do these big ambitious things, but we forget that like if a big ambitious thing is building something, and we spend more time examining and studying and permitting and reviewing than we actually do building, that's a problem, uh, and we won't we won't be able to do the big thing. So like, I, I bring this up all the time on here, but like Rachel Maddow used to have one of these MSNBC commercials um, where during the Obama years, we were talking about how government can do big things. And she did it in front of the Hoover Dam. Just, we built this in four years and blah, blah, blah. And it's like the idea that she would be in favor of building, I mean, I, I'm against the Hoover Dam. Like I, I want to get rid of all, that's why I want fusion, right? Is I want... Well, but so the Hoover Dam is great. This is one of these things you learn when you do a tour of the Hoover Dam, which I've done multiple times. I've been times. to the Hoover Dam. It's um, an awesome dam. The Hoover Dam is also the only hydro project the federal government has done that made money. Is that right? I didn't know and that. And what they like to tell you, and what they like to tell you when you're on the tour, is that they never financed another dam the way they financed the Hoover <laughs> Dam ever again. <laughs> um, right? You know, doing it well. I mean, I guess you know, the, you know to be overly cynical, right? All of the things that are wasteful and time consuming and so on, 
you know, there are opportunities for grift, there are opportunities for rent seeking, there are opportunities for petty bureaucrats to build their fiefdoms. To have something work well, quickly, and efficiently squeezes all that out. Um, um, so it's ironic that, the, you know, the federal government made a choice to not ever do something the way we did the Hoover Dam again. And that's part of, you know, whether we like the Hoover Dam or not, that's part of the problem, right? That that we could do a lot of big projects um, uh, more effectively and more efficiently. And I should note, you know, it's not, it's not just the big projects. It's not just the highways and the infrastructure. It's not just transmission lines. We see this at the state and local level too, right? It's housing. It's all kinds of things, right? We want affordable housing. Oh, but we can't let anybody actually build stuff without going through years of permitting. Um, it's, 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 it's crazy. Um, uh, and it matters to our ability to solve problems. I had to do the silly digression and I'm, I'm with you with the problems about red tape and all, regulation and all that. But like, I'm a charismatic megafauna guy, right? I'm not saying climate change isn't real and all that kind of stuff. But I, I think if we're going to fix climate change, it's going to come from technology. It's not going to come from throwing wet blankets on economies and all that. Um, I want to save elephants. I think the oceans are in dire straits, right? I want to save fisheries. And, um, um, and, I'm, and I'm very open to market-based solutions to some of these things. Um, and I, and I, I, I do not like aesthetically or morally like hunting elephants. But if you told me for every elephant that some African country killed, allowed to be shot by some Donald Trump Jr., it saved the lives of 10 elephants, I'd take the trade-off on those terms. Um, and I know that part of your answer to a lot of these problems is establishing property rights. And I agree with you. The problem is, is that's really hard with some of these commons to establish property rights in ways that um, deliver the results I want, which is to make the world full of really cool friggin' animals and, and wild places. So how's that project project going? I mean, it's, you know, in, in, in mixed. I mean, so, I mean, the, the basic, I mean, this is something that the way liberals, we think about how liberal institutions solve problems is that, you know, we solve the easier problems first and then there, we, always realize there are harder problems left and there is a learning process about how do we learn to adapt these institutions to the new, more challenging problems. Um, in some of the examples that you gave, we've done it, um, right? So back in the 1950s, fisheries were the textbook of the commons that can't be fenced. You can't have ownership. Oh my gosh, tragedy of the commons. We need regulation and so on. Um, well, it turns out the regulation didn't work and um, for all sorts of predictable reasons. And property rights do, and the peer-reviewed literature is actually now filled with articles demonstrating that where property-based management regimes are adopted for fisheries, sustainability is not a problem. And on top of that, you know, things like people dying in the process of catching fish uh, goes down too. So it's it's better for fish, it's better for people, it's better for the environment. Okay, so I'm, I'm going to do a little bit, John Bedortz on you. Explain how that works for the listener who doesn't know what property-based, you know, solutions yeah, so the idea is is that you know you know um, if you have a, a commons, um, the problem is that in a, in an open access commons, everyone's incentive is to 
uh, use the commons as much as they can because the costs are um, the costs of overuse are dispersed upon all of the users, but you capture all the benefits, right? You you add an extra animal to the pasture, you get to fatten your animal for slaughter. Um, you capture those benefits insofar as you are stressing the pasture uh, by overutilizing it, exceeding the carrying capacity. That harm is distributed among all the people that are using the pasture. And we know that one way, the way you solve that with land is you divide it up. Um, the challenge with fisheries is, well, how do you do that? And, you know, we've, we've, depending on what type of fishery, you know, there are some that are based kind of spatially the way land is, where you can have um, uh, privately owned spaces. Um, um, the, the way that's been more common is to do something called catch shares, um, where you, um, uh, take the fishery as a whole and you allocate um, portions of the catch um, to participants in the fishery and um, that's theirs and they can they can they can use it they can catch that portion of the, of the catch they can sell it um, they can transfer it and um, uh, we know that that um, reduces a lot of destructive behavior the so-called race to fish the feel you know the desire that you've got to catch before somebody else does um, we know that it increases um, allows you to increase the efficiency of your operations because you can invest in um, uh, fishing more efficiently in a lower cost way. It allows you to um, accommodate other sorts of concerns. So in fact, if you want regulation of things like preserves and the like, um, you know, don't want to have fishing in certain times of the year because it'll interfere with, you know, turtle mating or something, um, it actually reduces the costs of adopting those sorts of um protections on top of it. Um, and it also aligns the fisher's incentive with the long-term health of the fishery, right? So if I own 5% of the catch, um, it's in my interest for that catch to increase over time because then my 5% share gets bigger over time. Just like if I'm a farmer, it's in my if I own the, the land, it's in my interest not only to have a productive season this season, but to manage my land so that over time my productivity increases and is sustainable. And this isn't just theory. We've seen it. Uh, I mean, I've done a couple pieces just summarizing the empirical literature. Um, but the empirical literature shows when you do this, it works. It's not dependent on being on countries being wealthy like the United States. It ha it, it can be done uh, uh, in all sorts of cultures and societies and all sorts of levels of economic and technological advancement. Uh, it works. Um, it, it produces the environmental benefits we want. It also produces economic benefits. And again, it also makes it cheaper for the government to do the governmental things. Um, I mean, I would argue it may cause some of those things to be unnecessary, but if you still think there are public goods in the oceans that you want government to protect, it, it makes it easier for the government to do that um, without shutting down the productive use um, of the fisheries. So the lesson there is that, you know, it took time, it took creativity um, to figure out how to conceptually take what we did on land and apply it to water. Um, but we've done it. We've done it. We've done similar things with um, water quantity flows um, and marketizing that through property rights. And again, we, we had to we had to experiment. We had to figure out how to do it, how to apply these institutions into a new space. But that's like the history of property rights, right? I mean, the sense that, you know, historically, the only thing we really thought about was the thing in my hand and the land. 
And today we have property in all sorts of dimensions. The way we would put it is there are so many more sticks in the bundle of sticks that that are property rights than we recognized. And we had to learn how to define those sticks and how to make them transferable and divestible and quantifiable and uh, investable and so on. Um, Where we've allowed that to happen in the environmental space, we have tended to see positive results. Um, The problem is there are a lot of contexts in which we, through regulation or other things, don't allow that evolution to take place. But we've done it with fisheries. Um, We could do it with whales uh, if we wanted. Um, There is work pointing out, you know, whales, there are few enough of them and they're big enough and, you know, you can tag them and whatever else. Uh, We could do that, right? We could we could establish ownership in whales and we could allow the anti-whaling people to buy up the whales and own them and protect them, right? Jane Fonda could, instead of lobbying for anti-whaling legislation, could raise money uh, to buy whales and to put them off limits uh, for, for hunting. Um, and, and we know how to do that um, technologically. And how would you enforce these, I mean, like some off-book Japanese or Chinese boat comes along, says, that's a good whale, cuts off the tag, throws it away, harvests the whale. Like, like who's, who's riding to the rescue to enforce Jane Fonda's property rights on that whale? Well, I mean, so, you, I mean, you certainly would need an international agreement, and we have international agreements, but um, the, the ability to monitor and to figure out who took the whale is actually far greater than we realize. I mean, you can, you can effectively fingerprint um, um, uh, uh, vessels. I mean, you, so you can identify, keep them apart. You can track the whale by satellite if you tag it. Um, you know, one way they've gone after poaching for, for whales uh, and elephants and the like, you can also... Um, You know, if a whale is taken for research purposes, what you're supposed to do is um, uh, genetically type it so that if stuff ends up on the black market, um, you can determine whether or not it was the diversion of a properly uh, uh, taken. And you can do that without, I mean, there are a lot of species, you can do that kind of stuff. I mean, you can do the enforcement mechanisms. Um, If you're dealing internationally, you have to have an international agreement um, but it's not as if that international agreement is more difficult than um, the, the, what the International Whaling Commission does now, right? Which is say, you know, you can't whale unless it's for scientific research or unless it, uh, you are an indigenous population that historically hunted whales. Um, uh, and the, of course, the difference with a with trying to enforce a property-based regime is that you have people within that regime who have a stake and have an interest in enforcing in a way that you don't now, um, which is effective. And so in like the fisheries context, um, you know, some of the most property-oriented fisheries in the world are in New Zealand. And um, what they found is that when the the fishermen have a stake in the long-term health of the fisheries, their attitude towards the rules is very different than when the rules are the government imposing it upon me. Um, and I don't know what the rules are going to be next year. Um, when it's, these are the rules that we've agreed to and our future livelihoods and our, our investments and the like are dependent upon it. The whole dy- dynamic changes because the incentives change. And so we want to create those incentives. Uh, I'm all in favor of, you know, one of the reasons I like property-based institutions is because it gives the folks that care about a particular environmental resource or a particular a particular place a means of advancing that 
and pursuing that that doesn't involve does not involve running to Washington D.C. or or or, or appealing to some bureaucrat. Um, uh, you know, the, the 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 less attenuated that desire and an actual tangible interest that has legal protection can be, the better off we are. Um, doesn't mean it's easy. It doesn't mean we know how to do it in every case. Um, but if we don't have an idea of what kind of the ideal ideal state might look like, we don't know how to identify what's progress in that direction. So one last thing, just on Wales, I, I haven't looked it up. It bums me out. My name's Jonah, so I have this very long-standing attachment to Wales. Um, but um, why are these sea-based windmills killing all these whales? Like, what 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 is the causality there? I, I I don't know, and and I don't know if that's if if in fact the causation is there, whether or not it's happening for for that reason or another reason. I don't think we fully know. You know, I've been in environmental policy enough um, that when someone says, "Oh, there's this problem, and it must be caused by the thing I don't like at the moment," my initial response is, "Maybe um, we certainly should look at that," but. I'm not going to assume that uh, the problem of the day is necessarily caused by the thing that the people that are complaining about the problem already didn't like. Um, you know, I mean, with wind turbines, there are legitimate issues about um, birds in some parts in some parts of the country, uh, bats actually as well, um, um, and um, we should we should care about that, but we should also recognize that. As with anything else, there are trade-offs. Um, there are always trade-offs, uh, and um, there can be solutions. And and um, like with birds and windmills, we it turns out you paint one of the blades a different color, like paint it black, um, and that actually dramatically reduces bird kills um, because. Um, the bird, something about the way the birds can perceive it, it creates some sort of flicker for them that they could not, or that they would not see before. With bats, presumably, um, the solution is to do something that sonically would work for bats. Um, um, or garlic. But I would, I, but, yeah, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> depends on the type of bat. Yeah, but, fair, um, fair. Uh, but, uh, 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 you know, presumably there's a way to do that. And with, you know, if it's, is it whales? Maybe. But, you know, we've been told so many things are bad for whales over the years that may or may not actually be bad for whales that just happened to be things that people were already upset about that. um, It might be true. I understand using, you know, charismatic animals as poster children. I mean, it's, it's worked wonders for pandas and, and to some extent, polar bears. Um, And, uh, um, but pandas, see, the problem with doing with pandas, though, is that, like, and pandas are adorable, but pandas kind of suck. <laughs> They're, like, awful parents. They're really awful parents. Um, polar bears are mean. Uh, koala bears are drug addicts. Um, elephants, on the other hand, um, are just totally cool, and they have incredibly complicated social structures um, that it's hard to resist not anthropomorphizing and uh, elephant behaviors. And so, like, elephants deserve that treatment. Um, you know, some of the other charismatic megafauna, they're they're charismatic, but they're... Oh, well, no, dolphins are rapists. I mean, dolphins are terrible rapists. And, and otters, which I think pound for pound might be the cutest animals out there, are vicious bastards. 
I mean, they're just horrible, horrible creatures. Yes, there's a phenomenal Michelle Wolf routine on 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 otters and and baby seals and and the like that um I, I you know may or may not be to your audience's taste depending yeah, on I mean, you know their their tolerance for profanity and the like but um it is it is it is clearly the funniest bit she has ever done <laughs> and it's like the and it's like the first eight minutes of her Netflix special so you can like once she stops talking about animals you can just turn it off and not worry about the rest we'll put it in the show notes so yeah the, the part about otters and baby seals and 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 the like is 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 brilliant and also about you know um doing what I just did in terms of ascribing or characterizing animal behaviors in in human terms um, um, but yeah all right, I was going to get into comic book geekery with Spider Verse thing, but we've run long, and um, it's it's great. The movie's great. I just saw it last week. It is it's, great. It's really great. It's it's so the only point I'll make because listeners should know, like Jonathan's also a comic book guy. Um, I think people like us Gen Xers who really like comic books, we waited a long time and went and lived through some really bad pop culture. <laughs> for live action stuff. Remember Captain America on the motorcycle in the eighties or, I mean, I have a warm spot in my heart for the Lou Ferrigno Hulk, but it was not good. Right. And, um, and finally CGI caught up and you could actually do live action that looked like it was real and it was awesome. But over the course of time, something about the magicalness of comics, the sort of playfulness with reality kind of got lost because it was so possible to do and i think those spider-verse movies um they bring it back in ways that are partly nostalgia i will admit but because it's there's so many deep cuts visually for um stuff that only people like us who grew up reading the comic books would recognize i mean i can't i can't name every artist that was visually given a shout out in that but i could recognize how many there were you know well, it's, and it's also, I mean, doing it in a way without sacrificing um, uh, the 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 history and kind of loyalty to the long. I mean, I mean, there's there there are shout outs to, uh, and I don't want to say any, I'm I'm being very careful because I don't want to say anything that gives that 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 is anything any type of spoiler, but the the reverence of canon or to canon and to recognition that, you know, the stories that people may be reading of Spider-Man today aren't the stories that we read as a kid, but there is a there is a respect for the continuity and for the things that make a Spider-Man story a Spider-Man story and what it means to be, you know, I mean, th- there is... The the movie is made, you know, it, mat- it matters to me when movies like this get made that they are respectful of the content in a way that people that have a long connection to it um, can appreciate and and the ability to like speak to my daughter and to be one of her favorite movies and to also allow me to be like totally geek out simultaneously is just awesome. All right, my friend, thank you very much for doing this, and um, we got to have you back sometime soon. H- happy to do it. Okay, so uh, Doctor Adler, Professor Adler, Hair Adler has left the studio. Um, uh, this is sort of a podcasting marathon for me. I already did Glop this morning. Watch out for that. And then uh, just did this. And then a little while, we're doing another one uh, because I'm flying tomorrow. We're doing a dispatch event here in Houston. Um, sounds like it's going to have a great turnout. Um, I'll let you know. I'll, I'll have 
amusing tales on the Friday solo. Um, um, I should also say that I've just noticed that Adam not only looks healed, but he has uh, gotten rid of his uh, um, more Scooby-Doo haircut for something a little more clean cut. It's not quite like he's ready to go down to the draft board, but uh, it's, it's, it's progress. Um, and uh, um, hey, if you can become a subscriber to the Dispatch, it would mean the world to us. This is going to be a kind of a crazy time with the Trump indictment and everything else. And, you know, we're trying to cover it uh, thoroughly, comprehensively, but also uh, responsibly. And um, we got lots of reporters covering different angles of things. And reporters cost money. Um, you know, I mean, like Drucker expects to eat regularly. And uh, that, takes, that takes money. So um, if you could subscribe, that would be super terrific awesome. It would help us enormously do the things that we need to do. And I think it's great value for the proposition. So with that, I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast.